Welcome to the My Risk Advisor podcast. This podcast is for anyone in the Australian financial planning ecosystem with a focus on life risk insurance. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just starting out, I think you'll get heaps of value out of this podcast. I'm your host, Phil Thompson, and I'm a life risk insurance specialist, and you're listening to My Risk Advisor. Hey there, listeners. On today's episode, I have a really good chat with Natasha Roberts, who is a manager of capability and standards at Zurich, which just means she is a big dog at claims within Zurich. So we have a really good chat about the claims process, where advisors can add value, and maybe where we can sometimes step back and facilitate that process even better. Now, before we get stuck into today's episode, just want a massive shout out to Zurich and OnePath for being supporters of the My Risk Advisor podcast. Now, we can't do it without them. So let's get stuck into this episode, and you'll be surprised with what hobby Natasha has right at the end. All right. Thanks, Heath and Natasha, for coming on board. So the first question I guess I want to know is from the dark side, the insurer's side, yes. the scumbags that are insurance companies. No, just kidding. That's what people um, say all the time. It's not true, people. Yeah. Is your aim in insurance to not pay a claim? Oh, dear. We pay claims. We will pay claims and we pay 94% of claims, the life insurance industry. So, the yeah. the, the really, it's it, the misconception out there in regards to we, life insurers don't pay claims is, is truly incorrect. I've been in the claims business a long time and uh, and have paid many, many claims and we will pay claims, we'll always pay claims. And, uh, and, and I can hand on heart say that claims will always be paid because it's a lot easier to pay a claim in the life insurance world than it is to decline a claim. Yeah, it almost costs you less. To Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Just saying, but yes. Yeah. No, all right, good stuff. Um, and I guess, so what I really want to have a chat about is like how do us as advisors make that claims process as easy as possible? So we are often the the intermediary between the clients and the insurance companies. So um, really building out a robust claims process from an advisor's point of view. So what are the things that you see that, you know, when working with advice practices that have robust processes, what are kind of some of those common traits that they that they have? Oh, absolutely. It makes a big difference at claims time when that advisor um, is aware of the process and, and, and what we do within the claims team. Because obviously, there are different processes within the claims team depending on the claim. So again, it's really good when the advisor recognises that these short sort of pay and close type claims could be done over the phone rather than filling in paperwork. But but then again, there are some other claims which which we require the paperwork. And, and unfortunately, with claims, there is Sometimes a bit of paperwork to complete from privacy declarations to medical authorities um, that when the advisor can get all that or be aware of all those requirements up front, it just makes our life a little bit easier to make sure we can get that claims assessment process happening as quick as possible. Um, Sometimes when we only get part of the information, it makes a little bit harder for us to kickstart a claims assessment, which is probably our priorities. We want to get that assessment off and running as soon as possible. So, so again, when when an advisor is aware of of a claim team process and, and definitely sort of when can when can we fall into a, a, a teleclaim type process or, 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 or another process, it, it'll make our life a lot easier and, and the speed of the claim and turnaround time has a big impact. Yeah, and, and claims is one of these funny things whereby, you know, when, when we're helping clients set up insurance, that's really the promise that, that we're... Um, that needs to be fulfilled. Spot on. We deliver the promise and claims 100% and we're very much well aware of that. Yeah, and and as advisors, 
the amount of policies we set up versus the claims that we help facilitate is exponentially in the, you know, setting up new policies. So I guess getting a really good understanding of what the actual claims process is. So if you can just kind of paint a picture as to from an insurer's point of view, what does that claims process look like? And again, as I sort of alluded to before, um, 70% of our claims, and I'm talking income protection claims here in this particular instance, 70% are paid within sort of the first four or five months. So in other words, a lot of our claims which come into that claims team are short-term pay and close type claims. And uh, we really want to get these uh, assessments done quite quickly and less paperwork on some of these claims is is better. Obviously, there is a time where we require paperwork such as we may need financials for those indemnity assessments. We may need financials to assess a partial claim assessment. Um, So again, we try and make sure we provide as much information upfront on what we need for that claim. However, as I said, if it's that short-term pay and close claim, we may be able to do it over the phone with a couple of extra documents after it. So, and as I said, majority of our income protection claims fall into that process. And and if we can get that advisor, um, and their advisor can be part of this process as well. So, obviously, it's like a tele statement. um, And then if the advisor can give us access to to their customer to talk through uh, the claim over the phone, it actually makes our life a lot easier than rather the advisor having to go and complete all the paperwork. So I would strongly suggest the advisor to sort of give that claims team a call and understand with that particular claim they have, they may have a long-term claim like a cancer claim, for example, which is not going to fall into my paying closed type scenario. So if they ring us up, we can actually say to them, you know what, we're going to need these forms to be completed. Um, uh, if it is going to be that long-term claim, or we might say to them, you know what, I'm going to put you through my teleclaim process and if we can speak to your customer directly, that's going to speed up the process a whole lot faster than sending out the paperwork pack. Yeah. And I guess what would you say to advisors who have, who are a bit hesitant where saying, my, you know, getting my clients to talk directly to the insurer where there's kind of no gatekeeper, um, there is a bit of hesitancy there. So, I guess what would you kind of say towards that? And that is a really, really good question. And and again, I've explained I've been in this industry a long time. Um, very, very much claims teams processes are all about communication and and getting on the phone. Um, under LICOP, the, the code of practice, which is the life insurance code of practice, it's very much making the insurer having that customer centricity and that customer approach and making sure we are communicating with the customer regularly, making sure we are providing the information and why we need the information, why we're requesting things. So we are very much bound by this code of practice where we must be communicating with these customers. Not saying we don't communicate with the advisors, but we just need that advisor to support our obligation to the code that we've got to keep these customers up to date and let them know what's going on and why we're requesting what we're doing. And it's not necessarily saying to me, let the advisor know. It's actually we have to tell the customer what we're doing and where their claim is at every certain period of time, depending on the claim. So it has changed. That came in in 2017. So back in the day, um, we could deal with the advisors one-on-one and and do that. And and in certain situations now, if there's a medical condition and a customer cannot, you know, communicate with us, and that's fine. We'll respect that and use the advisor. So as I said, with the code of practice, we're bound to deal with the customer directly. Claims assessment is a detailed 
Um, and we need to gather a lot of information. And what one thing I sort of want to highlight, and as advisor plays a big part in that claims process, because they're familiar with the customer, they're aware of that customer situation, family commitments, work commitments, um, just their general lifestyle, the advisor can provide that little bit of information to me as a claims assessor. However, sometimes with a claims assessment, we need to get into a little bit more detail. We actually need to understand their occupation and their day-to-day -day role. We need to actually understand their medical condition and how it's actually impacting the customer functionally on a day-to-day -day basis. So there are things which me as a claims assessor need to understand and sometimes that advisor can't provide me that information. And without that information, I can't assess the claim. So, and again, we're happy to have conversations with their customer. We're happy for the advisors to be a part of these conversations, but it is something that we they just need to be aware that we do need to communicate with the customer. And, and as I said, they can be a part of those conversations without doubt, no problems, but it makes my life and my team's life so much easier if we can assess the claim with all that information. Because if we get all that up front and we know that information, we can make plans on how we assess that claim moving forward. We may not need claim forms then on a monthly basis. We could push mm. those claim forms out to a different type of requirement. So, the communication piece is a big part now in the claims assessment world. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I guess, you know, I'll put my um, opinionated hat on. Yep. I guess there, there is a bit of um, this kind of combative attitude between advisors and, and insurers. And I've never kind of subscribed to that where I've always seen, you know, the insurer as a business partner. You know, the, the BDM isn't just, a, you know, someone who hands me a PDS. Well, they're there to help me assist in my business and my clients at the end of the day. And, and it's, a, again, with the claims, like my experience with claims, and we haven't dealt with that many claims. Mm -hmm. And the claims that we've dealt with are fairly straightforward as well. So, um, you know, cancer is pretty much a tick and flick and, yeah, here's the report, let's pay out the yep. claim. So it does make it easy when you don't haven't dealt with any of those more complex ones. But, yeah, I guess my encouragement is, yeah, just have that the attitude whereby we are a team here to pay the claim and less of a combative insurers are trying to, you know, reject a claim as soon as possible. Um, and also if we hold, as advisors, if we hold that attitude where insurers aren't, you know, willing to pay a claim, then why are we selling these products? Like we need to have an attitude of, well, we are here to pay out legitimate claims and insurers do. So let's all stop moaning and whinging about claims and, and let's get, just get them paid in an efficient manner. 100% agree. And, and, and you raise a really valid point there when you talk about not a lot of advisors had had that exposure to a claim. And, and that's exactly right. Um, uh, I don't expect an advisor to be over that whole claims process. And, and when they do get a claim, I strongly suggest they actually ring the assessor and ask them, what the process is and what is the expectation for their customer because the assessor will be able to give you an ID. And again, depending on the claim, is it a cancer claim? Is it straightforward? Is it a, a complex claim? Is it one where we're going to need, you know, additional financial evidence? The advisor, I strongly suggest, can speak to the assessor and just get a bit of a guideline on what to expect because there are different claims and different processes. And, and until that claim gets sort of landed on that assessor's desk, they probably can't tell the, the 
they could quite clearly, once they reviewed it, let the advisor know, you know, what the expectation is and where there are concerns. And, and again, under the code of practice, we are very much, and there's probably two aspects here I want to talk about. Code of practice is very much, we must provide every bit of information we obtain during that claims assessment process to the yeah. customer. They are need to be seeing exactly what we're requesting, why we're, where we're requesting. When we receive it, we can provide copies. So we're very, very much open and transparent in every part of a claims assessment process. However, the biggest issue from a claims team and a claims assessment process is privacy. So privacy is the number one issue about claims assessment and an advisor. So customers need to be aware that during a claims assessment, we get a lot of personal and sensitive information, particularly around medical and also financial. Does, does that customer feel comfortable with their advisor seeing everything in their medical, um, which is something we need to gauge at the beginning of a claims assessment. And if a customer is comfortable with their advisor and being a part every step of the process, then we are comfortable to keep that advisor in the loop. But it, it is a conversation that needs to needs to happen because, as I said, some of these detailed, complex claims assessment can lead to a lot of personal and sensitive information that we need mm. to make sure the customer is happy for us to provide the advisor. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, so touching on that, because as an advisor, we often in the personal statement stage where the tele-interviewer says, do you want your advisor to know about it? And we often get caught up where the clients say no um, to the tele-interviewer because they kind of don't really understand what they're being asked necessarily. And we, in my business, we ask a million and one questions before we even get started giving advice. So we kind of know everything. Um, so it's pretty like... I can't remember one client who's legitimately didn't want us to see their personal statement. So I guess the concern from an advisor's point of view is making sure when the claims assessors or the claims team are asking that question, do you want your advisor to know, they also understand that the downside of not looping us in, um, which is which can be difficult. Exactly right. And and again, we are in the business of paying claims and, and obviously when they get to a potentially an adverse type assessment in a claims assessment and we're relying either on medical information that assists us in, in you know, why this claim may be declined, we obviously have to provide all that medical evidence. So, you, so you're right, it's really clear. And sometimes when, we, when it is an adverse claim assessment, I'm not saying we don't do it, that advisor plays a really pivotal role in regards to trying to explain and understand what's going on. And, and when an advisor is in as part of that process is there, it makes our life a lot easier because it is a, a very complicated uh, time of time for them. The customer is obviously unwell and going through a, a significant illness. So, so if there is concerns or of an adverse decision, having an advisor there does really help. But again, it will mean that they're going to have um, a lot of medical and financial information in their hands to to sort of review. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, like we, you know, in the in the setting up of the policies, we get declines of applications, yep. and sometimes if they've said no to that question, it's like. Well, you got declined. I've got no idea why. Um, I can't help you any further because we yeah. don't know. And then, and the clients are like, "Well, yeah, well, I'm happy for you to find out." Yeah, like, exactly. Um, yeah, so it is. It is interesting that that you know privacy versus being able to advocate for for our clients. Okay, so next, I just want to kind of just step by step as as we kind of both touched on that advisors don't really deal with claims all day every day. So, what is the actual step by step process that an advisor goes through? When a claim's lodged, or you want me to go from the very beginning? Yeah, let's go from the very beginning. Go Someone from the you know, has has an issue, and they come to us and say, "Hey, I, you know, I, I twisted my or busted my ACL, 
or I've got cancer. Yep. What what is um what do we do? They can ring the hotline, they can they can obviously have it we have an advisor portal where they can log some information. But the key part when a, a claim wants to be lodged or notified is is just giving the basic details. Exactly what you said then is obviously the policy number of the customer, um, understanding if we can, uh, what has happened and what type of claim. So is it a is it an income protection claim or is it a TPD claim? We want to make sure we're getting the right claim forms or claim pack out to uh, the customer and or advisor and obviously letting us know where we need to send the claim pack. However, in saying that, in exactly your situation where you mentioned you had a, you know, a, an ACL tear and that to me doesn't necessarily need a claim pack. We would, we would basically say to, to whoever notified us of the claim is that this could go through our teleclaim process and can we set up a time to, to talk to the customer. So, again, first things first, we have a little bit of information when you do want to lodge the claim. It makes our life a lot easier to make sure we can get the right paperwork out. We can do things by email. We can do things over the phone as well, obviously, within reason. Um, but again, back in the day, I must admit, we had to get everything signed and original copies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The claims teams change significantly and uh, we're very much up to date with the digital world. We can definitely do better with the digital world, but we're trying to make things less paperwork and as quick and as easy as possible. And part of that is a teleclaims process and less paperwork. However, if we need to send a claim pack out to complete that as best you can is really good. And generally, most of the claims, obviously, we need medical, some form of medical information, whether we get their doctor to complete the claim form. Um, just got to be aware of that situation. However, if they have any reports or any medical evidence already with them, that actually speeds up our process first. We may not need to rely on that that claim form by the treating doctor. So if there's any medical, like a discharge form or, or, or some sort of medical letter or a specialist letter, which they can send in with the claim form, um, makes our life so much easier and quicker to get, get that claim uh, on the road a lot quicker. And just to, just to pull back the curtain a bit with regards to like resource management, do you have claims team that specialise in like income protection, TPD, trauma and life or do a claims assessor works across all of all of those policies? Like how does that, it's how does a that really, work? really good question. And I can tell you um, uh, the claims team does have a, a lump sum claims team, for example. So who would look after sort of your trauma and TPD type claims. We also yep. have a teleclaims team, which look after the front end short term pay and close. We have a mental health claims team. So they look after all those mental health income protection claims. And we obviously have just straightforward income protection claims teams. And we also have a death claims team. So yes, we do. So every team... Well, that's got to be the easiest job there, surely. Just here's a death certificate or a tick. <laughs> Generally, if they're dead, they're dead. There's not too many issues yeah. with that, unfortunately. Um, yeah, that'd, yes. be the, that'd be the good job. It's the just the volume. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you guys segment those different claims. And then if we've got a, a trauma and an IP, um, we've just got one claims assessor who can go across both? I'd like to say yes. On That is the ultimate. Um, sometimes they don't get logged together. Sometimes there's different assessments. Um, but but what I can assure you is the the if it is split, so for example, TPD, we have an IP claim and then a TPD claim logs logs in um you've had the assessor has had the ip claim but they not might not be aware of how to assess a tpd claim so that is why potentially yeah. we do have to separate them but we do have um case conferencing is a, is very much a part and parcel of our claims team where oh, that's all, a bit of jargon we love jargon in financial oh, services but what is case, case conferencing, conferencing here you go this is a big part of a claims team this is where we actually sit in a room and we talk through that individual claim that individual customer and how we can get this customer um 
the support they need. And, and we have rehab come along to this discussion. We have the assessor who comes along to the discussion. And as I said, if there was an IP claim and a TPD claim, both the assessors come in and we all talk about this claim uh, and to see, work out what we actually need to do to, to from a rehabilitation point of view or a medical point of view um, to make sure that claim is, is, is being assessed in accordance with sort of the, the expected timeframes of, of that medical condition. Yeah, and I mean, having separate assessors can, you know, can sound like a frustrating experience, but at the end of the day, you want people who know those contracts best to be managing those claims. And that's exactly right. It's a bit of a catch-22. I agree totally having the same assessor for both can can, can work really well and does work really well. Um, but then having an assessor who, who can't actually assess, you know, those two types of claims proves challenging and, and also provides delays if they're not getting the right information on these claims. So, uh, we're a large claims team in Zurich. We've got over 240 staff just in our claims team. So, wow, we have... A lot of assessors, we have a lot of claims teams, we have a lot, a lot of people in this business and uh, always assessors, are, are good assessors are hard to find and I'd love to be able to say every assessor could do everything uh, but unfortunately, um, it, it's not something we do straight away. It takes time to become a good assessor across all things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned before earlier about having those requirements to get back to the the claimant um, in a reasonable time frame. Like, I guess, touching on that, how much of a regulatory oversight is there on that claims process? And, and I'm sure um, it's much more now post Royal Commission. But yeah, what does that kind of regulatory oversight look like? A very, very good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, it's it's a big, big part of the claims team. Um, prior to the Royal Commission, it was there, but clearly not to the level it is now. Um, obviously, since the Royal Commission, the biggest change was the Life Insurance Code of Practice, which came in, which is all about the customer and making sure we are upfront, transparent with everything we do and that we contact the customer. And again, depending on the claim, for example, income protection claim, we must contact the customer every 20 days unless the customer mm -hmm. clearly doesn't want us to talk to them. But that is part and parcel. We we got no choice and, and we must touch For base. a long-term IP claim. We even. can change the frequency of it after sort of a long-term claim. But okay. initially up front, the first 12 months, we need to contact them regularly and let them know what's going on. Because back in the day, claims people very much, we, 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 people would have thought we were hidden and we didn't sort of communicate. We didn't explain what we are doing. And, and very much nowadays, we have to go above and beyond, which is fine. Yeah. And I actually think the code of practice is a really good thing for the claims team because we, it, it, it makes, it's not, doesn't make us, it, it, it clearly shows us what we have to do every step of the way in, in a claims process. And, and you have ASIC and you have APRA, we have um, AVCA. So again, three, ASIC come in and do regular audits, um, APRA come in and do regular audits on who's signing off claims, should the right people are assessing claims, have we got the right training going on, have we got the right capability? Is our communications key? Are our processes working? Are we authorising these claims correctly? Are we paying the right amounts? All of that fun stuff. Throw in the, the complaints process, which is a clear part and a needed part of claims assessment, where you have that internal complaints process and we have the external complaints process with your, your AFCA and your ombudsman. So then you have your courts and you have your sort of litigation and you have a lot of feedback coming in to making sure we entirely as a claims team and the life insurance team are assessing these claims with the best possible intentions and in good faith. It's very much in good faith mm. um, assessing these claims as best we can and not just doing things uh, just because we think we can. It is open and transparent every step of the way. 
Yeah. I mean, the thing I like about doing these interviews and drawing back the curtain with, with insurers and, and other, other people in our industry is as, as advisors, we get very good at thinking the world's about us. And, and I mean, the world is about me. So that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. That's but, me. Um, <laughs> I thought it was but, me, but that's okay. You can have it. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's interesting to see like we see bits of legislation that come in that impacts advisors in kind of a small piece. And you go, well, actually, this kind of feeds onto every step of the, you know, value chain. Um, and it's really interesting to kind of pull back the curtain and go, okay, well, what are your regulatory obligations? Because we don't have to see a lot of these, um, even though you guys don't see a lot of the stuff we do. Um, it's just really interesting to actually have a bit of empathy for others in the kind of ecosystem and go, oh, actually, you guys have a lot of oversight. And it's not, you know, it's not, it's no longer the case where, you know, claims, uh, and, you know, there's no investment in claims um, because insurers have to invest in the claims department. There's no longer this, oh, let's just complain about claims because they never pay out. Well, actually, statistically, we can see the data now. It's yeah. not true. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of have a chat about and listen about those those regulatory oversights and, and what that looks like from, from your point of view. Yeah, I think it's death by um, data and, and sort of audits and reporting. But you know what? That is okay. Um, mm. it, it's totally okay and, it, and it's welcome. And the process, yes, it's 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 a really hard process to assess a claim. I'm not saying it's easy because of all these different – you think we've got to assess financials, we've got to assess medicals, we've got to understand policy terms and conditions, we've got to obviously be communications and understand our LICOP obligations. We mm. have procedures and guidelines every step of the way for every little thing you do in a claims assessment process from taking the notification – to signing off a decline decision. So, for example, every decline decision gets signed off by two people. You, not one person can sign a claim and decline it without someone else reviewing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, you wouldn't have seen these claims just yet, but the new new income protection policies, I guess, um, the, in formulating those products, claims was a big um, was a big part of formulating these new products because they're all fresh, everyone gets the start fresh and claims data can and should be dictating these. So I guess like um, what's your view on the new products? Again, I, I did have a part in the new product and um, I, 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 from a claims experience point of view, yes, we provided feedback. I'm actually excited about the new products because I can tell you we will still pay claims and we'll still pay the same amount of claims. We just may not pay them as long as what they have before. And I've seen firsthand that many people on the previous policies, particularly when they're guaranteed and the one duties where there's people who can work but choose not to and and they hide behind those previous policy terms where uh, they have that one duty and they're that builder with the massive building business, for example. He's unable to do his manual labouring and, and, and again, clearly can't be the builder. He can sit at home and uh, not work the business can still run in the background. He can get all those profits from the business and still get his full benefit from the uh, insurer. And that had no incentive for, for that customer to go back to work because he was actually gaining whilst on claim. Uh, and that wasn't the intent of these policies. And I can guarantee hand on heart, it happened a lot uh, where these policy terms were used uh, for a customer's ability to stay on claim longer when then than they potentially could. I think the beauty about these new products is it will allow us to pay genuine claims still and we will 
still pay the same amount of claims. We will be assisting these customers back to work as soon as they are fit and capable to return to work. However, in saying that and being a part of that whole product review, I can see that even under the new product terms, we're going to be paying long-term legitimate claimants. You know, we do that now and we'll do that in the new product. I know a lot of people have concerns with that change in definition from own to any, um, but I can assure you that I can see people, I look at people who've been on claim five, six, seven years, and I can guarantee you they would be on claim under the new product. So the product has been designed to pay legitimate claims for the length of time that is appropriate to the customer, but the customer will no longer financially gain whilst being on claim and that's the key mm. part of the new product yeah i guess i mean from an advisor's point of view or when i'm when i'm recommending these products it's always a little bit scary when the person holding the check is is got a lot more uh, uh discretion as to when they pay the check or don't pay the check um as the writers of the check which we uh, i you know, as someone who hasn't um, been involved in too many claims, and so I, I don't see those illegitimate claims um, or those claims where, where people are financially benefiting, but it's always like, you know, I always kind of like hairs at the back of my neck kind of go up a little bit going, if I'm paying out the check and I'm, you know, have a lot more determination of that check being paid or not, there's a little bit of this squirmishness. You can have the squirmishness, but I'm not sure if you're aware of the unfair contract terms which came in. And in an unfair contract term, we reviewed every policy terms at the beginning of this year to make sure unfair contract terms were removed. And you know what one of the unfair contract terms was? In our opinion. Okay. So, in Mm. our opinion, we need to rely on medical evidence not necessarily just based on my insurance opinion. So I hear what you're saying, but as I keep saying, we need to be open and transparent and provide every bit of medical information that supports our decision. And the customer Mm. and their doctors and their training doctors have every opportunity, and it's called a procedural fairness. We have to do that on all our claim declines where where we actually say, here's all the information. This is what we've done, what we've done for. Explain to us where I'm missing something because I need you to help me get your claim where it needs to go if we can. But if you can't, then this is the information we're relying on. We're no longer hiding behind walls or anything like that. Everything is very transparent. And if I'm declining a claim, I'm doing a, I'm offering procedural fairness to the customer. I'm showing every hand we have and every medical information we have. And that's part of the code of practice that we must be uh, fair and reasonable and transparent in every activity of every claims assessment. And we have over 4,000 claims just on the retail side of the business. So just... Mm. It's we're busy. Yeah, 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 and and you talking about that unfair contracts. Yeah, going back to my point where these legislation changes come in, and we as advisors, unfair contracts, oh, it kind of means that there's a new PDS. But for you guys, it's like oh, this mountain load of work to, to manage these new legislation changes. Um, so it's always good to kind of pull back that curtain and, and <laughs> yeah, have yeah. empathy for the other side. Thank you. Yes, we we and we reviewed it, but you've got to remember. I'm, my, my claims assessor makes a decision. It goes to someone else to sign off that decision. It then goes out to the customer to let them know what they're doing. If if then we make a decision, they've got the opportunity to go to IDR, which is our internal complaints, totally independent mm. review. If they don't like the IDR, they got the opportunity to go to EDR, which is your AVCA or your ombudsman. So there are so many steps and opportunities if that customer is not comfortable or, or wants to take it further, they can. And you're going to have a lot of different people reviewing a claims assessor who will provide an opinion and um and and again every opinion along the way is transparent and and documented and reasoning provided as to why we're doing everything along the way 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 exactly again to my point is why it's always good just to chat to other people in in this industry and go, well, what's your experience? What is the truth? Let's not just sit here and kind of moan and whinge and say you know that claims don't get paid and and we can push back on clients and when clients come back to me and say oh i kind of don't think i need insurance because the insurers don't pay it's like well actually i mean every soi i send out has got the um money smart claims data on yeah because you can get claims absolutely the data out there is there now i I agree five years ago it wasn't um Mm. we have asic reporting on our on our on you know our complaints data our decline data our you know assessment how many we pay like Every little piece of what we do is scrutinised. And you know what? That mm. is so not a bad thing because that that thought of insurers don't pay claims to me is getting a little bit old because we do and that is yeah. what we are here to do and we do and we pay a whole lot of them. Yeah, and that's the, I guess that's, you know, for any advisor who doesn't know, Money Smart website, um, you can go in there and you just Google, you know, claim statistics data and every insurer is listed there and tells you the decline rate. My only hesitation with that website, if if anyone from ASIC is listening or APRA is listening, is um, just give us data for the last 12 months and the data for the last five years because sometimes a 12-month window is a little bit Tight. Skewed, correct. Yeah. I agree, definitely. So I'd like I'd like a longer time frame so I can tell my clients it's here's the data for the last five years instead of just twelve months. Yeah, and they haven't updated it, you know, for a long time now. So <laughs> we're looking ASIC, at twenty twenty data. Yeah, ASIC. I think I don't know. Oh, yeah, it is hard. Insurers and data and claims data is we've been yeah. notoriously hard to get. Not hard, but it's there's so much information from a claims data world that you can grab. It's just how the system's collated and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the data's there. It's pulling it. It's by the time we can pull it and send it. And these are thousands and thousands of claims. So mm. sometimes it's not and, easy to collate it. Yeah, I guess just touching on that data, and this is probably going to be anecdotal unless you've got the number off the top of your head, but I guess one thing that a lot of advisors I talk to and I have this question myself is um, for income, long-term income protection claims over two years or over five years, how much of them would be legitimate TBD claims? Because there's very little data that I've found that supports one way or the other do you actually know that data or just anecdotally what's your kind of gut feel um we've sort of talked about it when we talked about the new apra dii products and and talked about the long-term ip claims so 40 percent of my claims book is over two years so a fair whack of my current claims assessments are yeah. over two years 95 percent of income protection claims will tick over like will we'll not go over the two-year mark. So if you think about 40% of my sort of claims book is long-term claims, that's a lot of claims which are sitting in over that two-year mark over, over the years. Now, when we looked at what's been logged a TPD claim, it's probably about 30% where a TPD claim has logged and paid. And I can tell you the reason why, because we have a lot of long-term partial claims. So one of the cl- biggest things which people sort of forget to consider is that if someone does return to work and they're earning a less income to what their pre-claim earnings was, they're going to have a partial claim and potentially a lot of my back-end books, people are working part-time because they're doing everything they can. They'll never get back to either full-time work or they're working full-time in another occupation and they're not earning the same amount of income. So, therefore, we're topping up their income. We'll top their income up to age 65 mm. um, and, therefore, won't ever be considered TPD because they're still working. All right, I love numbers and data, but just help me clarify that 30% of that f- long-term claim or yep. 30% 
of the long-term okay. claim book have had a TPD claim paid out. So there's probably one in yeah, right. three we paid a TPD claim, but the, the the others we haven't. And as I said, it's because these people are actually working or doing some part-time mm. work or uh, or don't have a TPD policy. So that would be the only other thing we've got to consider. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean... Not everyone has a TPD policy with, with their IP exactly. policy. And, and again, with privacy, we can't actually really sort of document or collate the data. Yeah, you can't pick another phone on a long-term claim. So what do you do claim, claim. claim? Yeah, exactly right. We don't collate sort of who has the TPD claim. And again, a lot yeah. of the TPD claims um, sort of sit in a superannuation-type environment as well. That's so. it, yeah. They could have a group policy exactly. external. Yeah. I mean, I'm that, just talking about the data we hold that, that we yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really good. That, um, But even, even the data you hold... You would think thirty percent of those long-term IP claims you wouldn't pay TBD. Not that you haven't, but you yeah. even probably wouldn't pay out a TBD claim. So absolutely, thirty percent number, even though it may be skewed because people may not hold a TBD, but just based on the actual assessment of exactly of why you're paying it out, yeah, um, which is really interesting when it comes to because you know we we basically threw out the, our needs analysis and and rejigged it all based on the new IP contracts, and and that was something that I pondered myself is oh well do we go for a five-year period or do we go for a two-year period and just you know skyrocket the tbd you know what no because i you know because people will return to work and and again we have and again if i could judge a claim on someone's motivation to get back to work then we, you know we wouldn't be here because there are people who obviously are severely ill and, and and are so motivated and get back to work but then you have these people who have this one little duty they can't do and sit on claim for the rest of their life so that becomes a, a big issue but with these new APRA DII products you've got to remember that obviously we want to get return to work is good for you we want to make sure they get to work and get back to health um, and sometimes health is, is even maybe a little bit of part-time work or, or, or some form of work and and if they are going, going back to some form of work and as I said I have people on claim now under the older products who've all gone back to a part-time work within reason and, and are on claim to age 65. A yeah. five-year benefit wouldn't help them. A two-year benefit doesn't help them because they're not going to get a TPD claim paid. So it's really important to sort of understand that we're going to top up your income if they do get back to work. They never get back to what they're earning previously. This is what these long-term claims are all about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Oh, this has been really fantastic. Um, I've got a few final questions. When do you get a chance to do your emails? Do you do it all through the day, in the morning, at night? What does that look like? 6.30 till 9 in the morning I'll do them because then I do back-to-back meetings from 9 till sort of 4-ish and then I'm yeah. doing emails for an hour and an hour and a half. I probably get about 100 emails a day. So good times. I've got a team of 14 technical specialists who get all the really hard, challenging claims and uh, they find some time to ask me questions. I've had three people just text me just saying, do you have time to have a chat about a claim, which yeah. I love. I love it. I love it. I love it. And uh, because I still see claims today where I go, wow, that is something new. And I've done this for over 20 years. So I love claims. I'm passionate about claims and I'll always have time. And the op- any opportunity I get to talk about claims, I will put my hand up because you know what? As, as we've, we've spoken about, not everyone has been privy to the claims process or claims mm. assessment. Uh, if I can get anything out there to explain that we are here to pay claims. And as I said, if I can pay a claim, it's much easier than declining it because you have to go through a lot of other processes uh, when a decline claim happens. And if I can give you some sort of insight, uh, always happy to help. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, and the last question um, is what interesting hobby do you have? And you told me before and I want you to 
give it a plug. <laughs> I was very excited when I was going to be doing a podcast with you, Phil, and uh, I had a little chuckle because I actually do my own podcast. My favourite, I'm a massive rugby league nerd and I'm a massive Manly Warringah fan, so don't hold that against me. And I actually do a podcast with my best mate called the Footy Side Up NRL Podcast. There's a couple of couple of uh, females talking footy and uh, we, we do it sort of as a bit of a laugh and a bit of a joke. So the Footy Side Up Podcast, get on it for the NRL the season next year. Footy Side Up. Perfect, yeah. and, and you listen to the back episodes for the last seasons, especially who won, who won the granny. Come who on, you should again? know that, Penrith Panthers. The Panthers, if you're a Panthers fan, listen or don't listen if you're don't a Panthers Don't listen because I, I actually yeah, okay. tag the Panthers. Yeah, okay, maybe don't listen. <laughs> don't listen. Um, <laughs> awesome, this has been a really good tra- chat. Um, I really appreciate your time. Um, and how do people get in contact with you if they want to reach out? Oh, good question. Uh, they can email me. Is that Okay. Yeah. Happy for an email. Um, Natasha.roberts at, at zurich.com.au and, and, and happy to give you a call and have a chat if you have any questions or any concerns. Always up there especially, for a chat. Especially the curly whirly ones, and you know they'll be responded between 6 I'll look after and 9.30 you. Yeah. in the morning. <laughs> it's generally early, so yeah. <laughs> I might not be able to call you sort of straight back, but definitely from an email, I'll get back to you. Awesome. Thanks, Oops. Thanks, Phil. Thanks for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think someone else will get value out of it, I'd love it if you could forward it on to them. And as always, we can continue the conversation in the My Risk Advisor Facebook group. All you need to do, open up Facebook and search My Risk Advisor and I'll see you in there.